Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 16th episode of Adam Alonzi's podcast. In this one, we're talking about economic pluralism and modern monetary theory. Enjoy. And one of the things that interested me was economic pluralism. And that was the first time I had come across the term. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, in some ways, it's kind of hard to explain to somebody that say, you know, have a degree in sociology or, or, or history or, or other disciplines where what we're talking about really already exists there. And that is a sort of um, oh, respectful interchange between different schools of thought. Whereas in our discipline, basically there's one school of thought that dominates everything. And I think it was John King who said that uh, an economist in, in Australia, that ours is the only social science where alternate viewpoints are either, people are either ignorant of it or they're actually uh, hostile towards them. And those of us who are pluralists, first of all, we don't think every view is right because they can't be because there are mutually exclusive propositions. Um, and so, you know, for, you could not, for example, study minimum wage from an Austrian Marxist perspective, I and mean, it would be very difficult to do. But the idea is that a pluralist economist doesn't have their mind made up that I know everything. Uh, and also, furthermore, I don't believe that people who are Austrians or Marxists are cranks. Uh, these are really intelligent people. And the more you learn about these other schools of thought, I, I think the more respect you have. I, I just published a book with Edward Elgar on contending perspectives. And the reason I did this is because we teach a class at my university at TCU that we require of all majors, that they have to take a course in contending perspectives where they learn, well, in my class, they learn about neoclassicism, uh, Marxism, Austrian, post-Keynesian, institutionalist, new institutionalist, and feminist. So I do a sort of shotgun approach. Other people narrow it down a bit, but there was no book. Well, rather there was, but it was 20 years old uh, and it was very clearly biased. Uh, for example, the Austrian chapter was clearly not written by an Austrian. It was very, um, uh, critical, and that's not fair. That, that, that's not pluralism, that, that's propaganda. So I wanted to do a, a book where we covered all these approaches, but what I did was each chapter, I sent off to somebody in that school of thought so that the Austrian chapter was actually checked by two Austrians, uh, two friends of mine who are Austrians, and they went through and said, okay, this is a reasonable you know, view of Austrianism. So anyway, my, getting back to my original point, that was the, I learned so much more about these other schools of thought while I was doing that and came away with even more respect than when I had started. Uh, not only in terms of the intellectual ideas that they had, but just in terms of how pleasant and friendly the individuals were when I asked them you know, to, to help out on this project. So that's one of our main thrusts is that these people and other schools of thought are not idiots. They actually have some very clever ideas and there's no way for you to ever understand well, when you take a foreign language, it allows you to understand your native language in a way you could never have understood it without finding out how others speak. And so likewise, if I start a course in containing perspectives as a neoclassical and I end it as a neoclassical, I'm still a better neoclassical than I was when I started because I now understand what it is that's unique about my approach. So we believe that actually economics is enriched by it being okay to have sort of respectful conversations across schools of thought. As it stands, good Lord, if you admit that you're somehow influenced by an institutionalist economist or, or a, an Austrian or a Marxist, then good luck getting published in a, in a mainstream journal. Uh, and so 
it, our discipline is actually hostile to alternate viewpoints. Had I not gone to University of Tennessee when I went there, which was simply an accident of my father having been transferred there uh, when I was in high school, I would never have learned about institutionalism uh, and about post-Keynesian economics. And that's what started me on this road. So I guess to, to, to summarize all that, those of us who are pluralists believe that there is a great deal to be gained from having respectful interchanges with members of alternate schools of thought. That doesn't mean that you think they're right. It does mean that you think they're not cranks, uh, that these are intelligent people. And there are. And the, the, what I tell my students is, there isn't a school of thought from which I haven't learned something where I said to myself, I never thought of it that way. That, that's really clever. Not a single school of thought where I haven't learned that. So that's kind of our big push. And, and I guess I should say this too, obviously in there somewhere is the belief that what's going on right now in mainstream economics is not um, effective. That one of the problems, for example, with the financial crisis, so many neoclassical economists said, gosh, who would have known? Uh, what a surprise this was. There's a, a famous article by Alan Greenspan, I think it's in Foreign Affairs, where it's all about how, gosh, how would anyone have known? I certainly didn't know. Well, it was being talked about a lot in other schools of thought. And so does that mean that you abandon your school of thought and, and do what they do? Not necessarily, but you're like, gosh, these people are talking about this event. Maybe I should look at, and so many mainstream economists suddenly discovered Keynes after the uh, financial crisis. Well, there were many of us that discovered him a long time ago. Uh, and so anyway, that, that's our idea to, to enrich the discussion and also to make economics a more useful discipline than it is right now. I could go on and on, but I'll stop for a minute to see if you had any specific questions. I think I think an increasing number of people can agree with what you've said. Over the course of these podcasts, I've talked to Georgists, Austrians, Keynesians, and Marxists about the financial crisis, and each one has had a perspective that is validated to some extent by the evidence. So it's like a massive, it's like the old elephant in the Indian story. All the wise men have their hands on one part of the elephant, so they think that the elephant is its tail or its balls right. or its... <laughs> well, that's right. And if they all get together and discuss, then they're like, oh my gosh, I hadn't thought of it that way. You know, maybe it's not, uh, not maybe it's not the trunk after all. And so, you know, and again, I mean, it, we can't really have probably, uh, I, one of the sort of rules of thumb I use is, can these two schools of thought, could you easily co-author a paper? Um, and some schools have thought that's true. Others, it's not. It is a little bit more difficult, but that's okay. When you're challenged, uh, then you end up understanding your own argument much better, even if you end up in the same places when you started. I find Austrians much more difficult to argue with than neoclassicals because they've actually, I mean, and no offense to neoclassicals, I was the same way when I was trained this way. They've actually thought about what they're doing. Um, it's been a self-conscious process of, I guess I'm not this school of thought. I guess I'm this one instead. And why? And you have to really examine your beliefs carefully and closely uh, when you switch schools of thought. And so, I mean, I was at a university where Paul Davidson was was there. He was the the um, you know, editor of the journal Post Keynesian Economics, the Journal of Economic Issues, the main institutionalist journal was there. But still, the classes were neoclassical. Uh, and so, this was kind of a a personal you know uh, journey of discovery. And so, when you have that journey of discovery, you end up understanding so much better what your own school of thought's about. Again, I, I guess my point is that we can't all agree because there are mutually exclusive propositions, but we can agree to talk about things with each other in a respectful manner. I think there's something to be gained from that.
And because it's so vast, you can have an environmental economist with his own special Uh oh, frozen up on this side. Didn't. Uh, ah, I guess I, you did. I lost you for a minute, Adam. It froze up. Yeah, that's. Okay. <clears throat> Go ahead. I well, I said there's a time to regulate, a time not to, a time oh. to implement this sort of right. policy, a time not yeah. to do so. So really, this kind of integration of all of these disparate viewpoints may result in something like a science. <laughs> that would be nice. Uh, you know, and, and that's a, a big problem in neoclassicism. I, I think that the discipline gets off on the wrong track when, you know, because even if we discuss things with each other, there's still the problem of we're trying to impress each other. Uh, we don't so much try to impress policymakers or business people or consumers, we try to impress other economists. And what impresses them is not the same thing. Uh, I, I've used the example before of what if architects built buildings for other architects? Uh, and then the other architects would be, gosh, that's so clever. How did you make the building balance on one corner like that? You know, and oh, well, I left out all the bathrooms. You know, meanwhile, the customer's like, I don't even see a door. Um, and so, you know, if your raise depended on impressing another architect, then indeed, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit here and do all kinds of advanced mathematics that really, in order to make the advanced mathematics fit, I had to assume some ridiculous things about the real world, but that's okay. That got me tenure uh, and a you know, really good publication. And, and, and nobody in the sort of real world has any earthly idea what is buried deep behind, you know, as Keynes says, you know, those pretentious symbols. Uh, they don't know what it is. You know, only those of us who have studied it have an idea of, oh, my God, Friedman's assuming a helicopter flies over. Uh, and that requires a financial system, you know, because clearly it's an analogy and, and I have no problem with that, but there is no analogous method available to the Federal Reserve. So the way a modern monetary system works, what Friedman does in the article where he talks about the money supply going up, uh, causing inflation, it can't happen in the real world. Well, if you're an average person on the street, you don't know that you haven't read quantity theory of money. Uh, I had to read it in graduate school. So we've really gotten off track on, you know, it's become a profession uh, and you have to get tenure and then you really want to get promoted to full professor. And how do you do that? Well, you publish in the so-called top journals, but what do they like? They like lots of math because it looks really, you know, it looks really impressive. The feminist economists, apparently, I just read this, this was in writing the book as well. I, I read this. The feminist economists say that perhaps one of the reasons for all the advanced mathematics is a sort of male competitiveness that, haha, this stuff's really hard. So that shows how tough I am. Uh, and I think there's probably something to that. Yeah. There's physics envy, but that's something yeah. to find in every science but physics. <laughs> well, I was a physics major for a whole month, I think. That was my first major, actually. Yeah. And then it turned out I didn't like physics. Yeah. So I don't have physics envy because I've been there. Uh, and then I left. And you saw that it really isn't what it's cracked up to be. But well... The, the subject matter wasn't what I found interesting. I mean, I, I liked the structure. I liked the math. Um, but, in, and, I, and I was convinced I was going to be a physicist. I remember filling out those on the SAT, what are you going to major in? I'm bubbled in physics. You know, uh, how, to what level? PhD. 
how sure are you in a scale of one to 10? 10. I was absolutely certain. And then I looked back and I realized I wanted to be an astronaut. I didn't want to be a physicist. I want to be an astronaut. Uh, and, you know, in class, all we were doing was figuring out, you know, if a ball rolls down a hill, you know, that sort of thing, which obviously is the building blocks. But I just found it so uninteresting. So then I went to political science, which I found much more interesting in terms of the subject matter, but I lost all the structure uh, and, and the mathematics. And then I came across uh, history of economics class. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is what I've been looking for all my life. Because I do like the math. I do like the structure. Um, I, I do think there's something to be said for being forced to specify your premises, to go through these are the relationships, and to then show, okay, so a variable X changes. This is what happens at the other end you know, with, with variable Y. I like that. You also have to be careful, though, of knowing what the limitations of that are. But that's fun. Math is fun. And model building is something that I've heard a lot about in lectures I've listened to about economics. And there are those who disparage most all models, and there are others who keep trying to construct them. So yeah. where exactly do you stand? Well, I think that all of us, I think it depends on what you're defining as a model. I think all of us are building models. It's just that what mainstream economics thinks of as a model is basically mathematically, um, you know, w with very specific uh, parameters and, and relationships. The Austrians, for example, don't like using math because they say, well, the real, real, real human behavior can't be boiled down to an equation uh, because humans have free will and so forth. But to me, that's still a model, though. I mean, they still have premises about, for example, with interest rates, everyone would like to consume, you know, all their income today. Uh, they have to be convinced not to spend all their money today. What does that interest rates and, and how high interest rates are indicate how much your desire to spend today is. The higher the interest rates are, the more you, the public must have wanted to spend the money today because the, the bank was forced to offer a greater reward to get them to not spend today. Well, that's a model. Um, the Austrian uh, business cycle theory is a model. So I think we all do that. However, some people... I think what they're talking about when they say do or don't build models is a question of, of how, you know, sort of formal it is uh, and how much you sacrifice your, I guess, premises about the real world. How much do you simplify in order to make it fit neatly into a model? Because I've done some system dynamics modeling, which is a, a computer simulation, essentially. And I was simulating the business cycle. Well, in order to do so, Good Lord, I don't know how many equations are in there uh, and feedback loops and so forth. It gets very, very complicated very quickly. Uh, you know, so was that a useful exercise? Yeah, but it's awful hard for somebody else to read that um, because th there's so much into it. So, you know, you were saying you know earlier about, you know, sort of an area for a, a time to build models, a time not to build models. Well, maybe put it this way. There's a time to simplify away from the fact that uh, households, you know, uh, save income, or I'm sorry, that, that households borrow money, and there's a time not to. Uh, because, you know, in, in intermediate macro, sometimes we start off with, okay, households only save, they don't borrow. Firms borrow, then they don't save. Well, that's not entirely true, but it's close enough for right now. You know, and so you go through the model, and, and you, get the, you get the result, and you find out that even if I eased up on that, I still get the same result. It would just take longer to get there. So, my okay. Actually, I have talked about this specific issue in class, and in fact, I was just mentioning to you on Facebook before that sitting next to me here is is uh, Europe uh, and my war game, um, Unconditional Surrenders, great game. 
Uh, and so I've used this in class before as an example of what is the best way to model the Battle of the Bulge? And there's a game called the Battle of the Bulge. And it has, oh gosh, I don't know, just a, a chunk of, of Belgium and, and, and France, you know, right around where the Battle of the Bulge took place. Okay. Um, and then I also have a game called Third Reich, which is all of Europe uh, in World War II. I also have a game called Global War, which, as one might guess, is all of World War II. Uh, and I have games down to individual man-to-man -man scale. And so I tell my students, which one is the best one to model the Battle of the Bulge? And when they sit there and talk about it for a minute, they finally say, I guess it depends on what you want to know. So that's exactly right. It depends on what you want to know. If your question was, what had the Germans not diverted all those you know, forces to the Western Front and left them in the East? How much longer could they have held off the Soviets? And you know, without, you know, and when you're attacking, you're going to use a lot more resources than when you're defending. Could they have held out longer? I can't tell that with a game that just has Belgium and France in it. Uh, or, you know, did the Battle of the Bulge in any way impact the allocation of resources to the Pacific War? I can't tell that with Third Record. I have Global War. So, you know, when do you model? Well, again, we're all modeling. The question is, what question are you trying to answer? And that's an art, trying to figure out how much do I simplify, how much do I put in, in order to highlight those parts of the, you know, uh, oh, let's say the, the financial crisis, in order to figure out what caused that. Uh, I'm sorry, it's a very long answer, but uh, well, it ended up and I have enjoyed a few war games myself. And yeah, it's a matter of emphasis. But then when you take the factors into account, you figure out the primary players and how they relate to each other. And that goes back to the idea of pluralism in economics, because each school has emphasized something different and right. studied it in depth. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, that, for example, the... It's interesting that, that of all the disparate schools of thought, I think the two that get along the best are the post-Keynesians and the institutions. And it's very interesting because on the surface of it, they have very little in common. They focus on very different issues. The post-Keynesians, really, uh, for those who don't know, post-Keynesians are those who think that what Keynes said made the most sense, which you say, well, those are, those are Keynesians. No, no, no. Keynesians are different. Uh, Keynesians are the ones who misunderstood Keynes, uh, who actually followed Sir John Hicks's interpretation of what Keynes said, which, you know, even in an intermediate macro class, when I, when I have the students read Keynes and then look at uh, Sir John Hicks's article, they too are like, what article or what book did he read? Because uh, he could not have read the same book I just read. So anyway, point being that Keynesian economics, according to most Keynes scholars, leaves out most of what's really important about Keynes. Now, post-Keynesians, and I don't know why they came up with that name, uh, because it sounds like it means that they're not Keynesians, but, but they're the ones who say, we think Keynes made the most sense. So they're, they're drawing from the general theory and the treatise on money and so forth. And uh, their models are, are, are largely, formula, uh, largely formal and pretty much just macro stuff, not exclusively. There, there's other things that have come up, but, but we're really focused on macro, financial markets, unemployment. Okay, now let's jump over to the institutionalists uh, that were essentially, you know, started by Thorsten Veblen and his focus on, you know, when he's writing, uh, Darwin's origin of the species hadn't been out that long. Uh, the discipline of anthropology was, was really sort of blossoming. And so he starts to think, hey, wait a minute. Maybe the same way that it's the strange habit of the so-and-so tribe that they do, you know, X. So it's the strange habit of our tribe that we allow the owners of capital to retain profit. It's just one of our strange uh, tribal customs. 
and so this is a very, very different perspective from the Austrians, from the neoclassicals, from the Marxists, uh, all of whom are viewing the, the capitalism as more of a sort of natural you know, part of, of history. Uh, the Marxists a stage thereof, but nevertheless, to the institutionalists, like, well, this just happened to evolve. Uh, and so we can change it if we want to. We can leave it the same if we want to. Now, why would those two, two schools of thought end up going together? And, and it's very strange um, because they are, again, on the surface of it, focusing, as you were saying, on very, very different issues. The institutionalists on um, sort of social, you know, the really important thing to them is, why do we accept capitalism in our culture? What is it about our values and about our, our, our rules of the game and, and so forth that make us think, oh, this is an okay system, this is a reasonable system. Meanwhile, you jump over to the post-Keynesians and we're talking about, uh, you know, stock market and unemployment and so forth, but they have, sort of, well, and, and from the get-go, I think the, the institutionals were very open to Keynes, um, even though they were you know, coming at things somewhat differently. Uh, but there has been a place where this pluralism has really worked out well. This didn't have to be forced, this kind of evolved, where we had two schools of thought that have a, have a somewhat different focus, but a complementary focus. Uh, and I, I find that the vast majority of, well, I shouldn't say that, but, but many, many people like myself identify themselves as both a post-Keynesian and an institutionalist. Well, which one are you more? Well, neither one, because both of these are essential elements of the way I understand the uh, economy. Now, on the other hand, there's another example of people focusing on different areas. I look at the, the neoclassicals and the Austrians and their view of the market. To both of them, markets are very important. To both of them, markets are, are sort of uh, superior means of you know, uh, social tools relative to others. Uh, and yet, in the neoclassical market model, generally speaking, we assume, okay, Let's just say everyone has, let's assume everyone has perfect information. Let's assume everyone's tastes are constant, you know, and, and on and on like this. And then we'll figure out what equilibrium result comes out of that. Well, now we'll know the prices and the quantities and so forth. The Austrians who, who agree largely in terms of, of the superiority of the market say that is a ridiculous way to understand how the market works, though. Uh, that we don't know. We don't have all this information. And in fact, that's why the market is so great, because we don't have the information. The market creates the information we need. The market creates signals like prices and profits and wages and, and quantities. And then we can use these, not perfectly by any stretch of the imagination. We're not, we're not coming to some equilibrium point. In fact, the Austrians say that the, the, the capitalist economy is much more dynamic than that, that this idea of coming to resting points does not describe capitalism at all. And so here we have two schools of thought that you would think on the surface, oh, but they get along really well. Uh, and yet, in fact, because of their different focal points, even though they're both focusing on the individual, the Austrian is focusing on the individual as being imperfect uh, and having not sufficient information and having in, in themselves, only they know their preferences. And the only way that all of us interacting together can, can create an outcome that is most consistent, not, not perfectly, because obviously we're going to have differences among ourselves, but most consistent with our sort of aggregate preferences is through the market, which creates these signals and so forth. So, you know, you have two schools of thought that, that appear um, not to go together, but their relative, you know, focal points are such that they're complementary. We have two that look like they would go together, and they don't. Another one, and the, when I was doing the feminist chapter uh, in the book, I expected to discover that Marxists and feminists got along great. Absolutely not. I would never have thought of this. Um, apparently, the Marxist focus on exploitation being a function of class, there's no role for gender in there whatsoever. 
you can't simply replace the word, you know, capitalist with male and you know, worker with female and suddenly get, you know, a, a coherent model. It's not there. Uh, and, and in fact, in Marx, a woman can't actually, in traditional Marxism, a, a woman can't actually be exploited because she's not doing wage labor. You know, if she's doing sort of uh, traditional, you have to be doing wage labor in order to be exploited. Now, that doesn't mean that there haven't been feminists who have you know, decided, well, but I can pull this and this and this. But as a whole, the approach doesn't match. And that's interesting. I mean, I, as, as an economist, I find that very interesting. In, in fact, when I did a survey of my, of my contending perspectives classes, and uh, one of the things I asked them was, after the class, were you more or less, you know, confident in your knowledge of economics? And the overwhelming majority, even though they've seen all these other views now, said they were more confident. Um, I also asked, are you more or less excited uh, about economics? No one said they were less. Everyone said they were either more excited about economics. Or, but this is the interesting thing. The seven people over the course of, I don't know, four or five semesters who found themselves less confident in economics also said they were more excited. Well, that's all right. I mean, it's okay to think, gosh, I, I'm not sure how this works now, but boy, I want to figure it out. Uh, and so when you're exposed to all these different schools of thought, it makes you question basic premises about your own school of thought. And it makes you confused. And that's a good thing because it can be an impetus to sort of, you know, you know sort of, of, of no longer take for granted things that you had before in your approach. I, I guess it's, it, it's um, and I'm sorry, I'll stop. I, I have, I can talk and talk and talk, as you may have noticed. I'll stop for a moment. Well, that's quite all right. That's the whole that. point. <laughs> uh, but we can take what we've discussed and apply it to a particular situation of your choosing, maybe 2008, maybe some other issue, and see how these different perspectives converge. Right. As a matter of fact, that's one thing I tried to do in the book was whenever it seemed relevant, I... Um, tried to make some reference in that school of thought to the financial crisis uh, because I thought the students would be particularly interested in that. I, I would be if I was just coming out of school uh, or just, you know, starting an econ major now. And so this would be a nice sort of, of, of solid point of comparison from school of thought to school of thought. And it, it, it's interesting, the Marxists, for example, Marx, and I hadn't gone back and, and I had to thank Andrew Kleiman for this. He read my Marxist chapter for me and I always, uh, I want to let my students know that I'm human too. Uh, he sent me back six single space pages of why I was wrong. Uh, and so, and that's, and yes, at first I was like, oh God, uh, like, okay, now I'll work my way through it. And he was right. And it's a much, much better chapter. And, you know, trying to tell them sometimes I, you know, I got to criticize you too, but it's not because I don't like you. I, I'm trying to help you understand, you know, what you're doing. And that's what uh, Andrew did for me. But one of the places he sent me to read uh, Marx is talking about the business cycle and the idea that during the upturn uh, that, you know, the beginning of, 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 the, of the end of the recession, interest rates are low because there haven't been a lot of demand for, for loans. And so money is easy to get. And then as the economy starts to take off, you get uh, an increasing number of, of uh, entities deciding to also get into the financial market and loan out money, many of whom don't have a lot of sort of financial backing. Uh, and he says, as things really take off in the expansion, when it seems like every investment, you know, pays off, everyone's loaning out money. He says, you also see outright fraud uh, taking place, you know, time after time in the cycle. And I thought, gosh, this is very relevant to the business cycle. I'm sorry, to, to uh, the financial crisis. Uh, and I wanted to you know, point it out to students that here is something that Marx said 
in 18 something, I can't remember which, uh, which book it was in, which uh, I think it was in Das Kapital, but I can't remember which um, volume. And uh, same thing happening today. So Austrians, Austrians talk about the fact, now they do it a little bit differently though, that they blame government intervention in the market for the business cycle. Marx blames, this is just the way the system works. It, it brings out, you know, people who are going to loan money with no resources and people who are going to try fraudulent activities. The Austrians are saying that the easy money policies in the upturn have convinced people to overinvest. Uh, and it has caused people to think that, you know, well, gosh, this must be a great investment. Um, and it's not that expensive to borrow money, so I'll get into this as well. And then we overinvest, and then one day when we find out we can't actually sell that house, uh, then it goes down the other way. Well, that, that's interesting too. Um, and you know, go on and on like that. You can see all these different perspectives uh, and see their insight on it. And initially, it can be very confusing. And you can say, you know, as a student, you say, well, gosh, all of those seem to have some element that made sense to me, and it's possible that. That is the case that all of them have some element that makes sense but you know that's not again as, as i've said a couple of times i'm not assuming everyone's right but it does start you considering different perspectives that you might not have considered otherwise and then as you work through this and let's say for example you found well gosh there's really no evidence of fraud whatsoever in this case which there was but let's say there hadn't been okay well then the marxist explanation is not that useful to me here uh or with the austrian view the idea of the easy money policy causing the problem. Well, actually, there wasn't one, let's say. You know, okay, well, that's not it. You know, so you, but, but it just sort of opens up your mind to the other possibilities. But ultimately, and this is what I stopped myself from saying earlier when I give up. So now I'll work it back in again. Uh, what was his name? I think William Perry, a, 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 um, a professor at Harvard, uh, has these Perry stages of learning. And I think it fits really well the whole idea of, of pluralism. He said that when students come to college, they see the world in black and white and they believe that there's you know that their professors are experts and they're going to tell them what's right and what's wrong and i know that was me absolutely that students thought or i thought that college is going to be sort of a quantitative increase in knowledge not a qualitative but a quantitative i i know how the world works they're just going to add stuff on and tell me what's right and what's wrong and he says that's how students start off then they begin to find out oh my god it's not that simple that happened to me in my uh, international relations class, a fantastic textbook that I couldn't put down once I started reading it. Uh, it started off with, here is a Soviet worldview. Uh, this is the way they perceive the world. This is the way Europeans perceive the world. And I'm sitting there reading it thinking, I never thought about that. I could easily see myself growing up in the Soviet Union and seeing the United States as evil uh, or at least unfair. And, and I had never considered that before. I always assumed, gosh, if only we could talk to each other, they would know that we're right and they're wrong. Um, and it, it really, you know, sort of, sort of jars you a little bit. And that's what Perry says. It jars students. Uh, and, and they sort of drift for a while. Like th they think, well, maybe one view is appropriate in one context and, and another in another. Or maybe all views are equally relevant. But you eventually have to come to a day of reckoning, uh, Perry says. When you have to decide, you know what? The, no, I mean, they're not all right. And I'm going to have to pick one. You know, and, and you mentioned uh, minimum wage uh, at one point as a possible topic to, to discuss. Okay, let's say we're going to examine the, the uh, issue of minimum wage. I cannot do a minimum wage study from the neoclassical Marxist, Austrian, post Keynesian, institutionalist, new institutionalist, feminist view. It would make no sense because there are, there are concepts in there that are mutually exclusive. I might have to pick one or two at best. 
So this is his last stage, which he calls uh, commitment. You, you pick a view, but you also are realistic enough to know that I could be wrong. All right. And, and that I am willing to look back at these other views that, that you, you apply the same skepticism to your own view, perhaps more because it's so easy to believe things you want to believe um, to your own view as you do to those views that, uh, you know, you already disagree with. So as a post-Keynesian, uh, I'm not going to think as much uh, about the neoclassical or Austrian views. But then you stop yourself and say, well, you know, I think, let me think it through again. Let me argue it through again and see what I think. Uh, and, and so and maybe one day you change your mind. So that, that's what, it, you know, at, the, at our university, they talk about people becoming a lifelong learner. And that's what that is. You know, you, you don't come out of college thinking this is what I know. You come out of college thing, thinking this is how I find out. Uh, and they sort of go through this process continually from there on. Hopefully we've armed you with the skills to allow you to evaluate different perspectives and so forth. But then he says some people though, uh, Perry, when they get to that middle stage, they can't make the leap to commitment. They just can't do it mentally. They, they fly back to there's right and there's wrong because uh, they just can't take the idea of the relativism. Uh, and so that's the way I view you know, the, these different schools of thought. You know, you're talking about uh, looking at a variety of them, say for example, for the financial crisis, I come from the post-Keynesian perspective but I have to admit that the Austrian view that making the interest rates, I, with, with several caveats, that making the interest rates as low as they were early on um, could have encouraged some, I, I don't think it was the core factor, but I think they have a point. Uh, but, you know, so I, I, I guess as a pluralist, I'm forced to at least address that point. Uh, well, they cite that and they cite laws that allowed for easy purchase, easy credit, Right. And encouraging banks to prey on people yeah. in a very legal, perfectly legal manner. Yeah. 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 And, and, and certainly that happened. Now, I guess the post Keynesian argument would be, but even without that, it could have happened anyway, because there are things inherent to the system that, 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 that systemically tends towards crisis. And certainly that made it worse. Where, I, mean, I guess the disagreement would come from the Austrians not necessarily thinking, well, no, no, if they hadn't done that, there wouldn't have been a problem. The post-Keynesians are saying, I'm not disagreeing you know, that there was something to what you said, but something could have happened anyway because the system is, is systemically unstable. But yeah, no, I, I agree with what you say. Right. And the Austrians don't deny that there are booms and busts, but they believe that the Federal Reserve aggravates it. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And the Georgists claim that if there was a land value tax, that would just destroy all land speculation and the land mania cycles. Uh, that's I mean, taxation theory is a complicated subject, and yeah. we've been and I don't for remember much minutes. about. Yeah, the last time I saw something on the Georgist economics, I was reviewing a paper on it, and that was probably about five or six years ago. I can't even. Remember. It was one of those things that I'd forgotten about until I was reading the papers. Like, oh yeah, I forgot about that view, and then read up on it, and now I'm afraid I've forgotten about it again, so could not address it, even if you asked me to. No problem. A uh, bit of coffee. Please. Now, MMT, which stands for Modern Monetary Theory, right, is sort of bizarre and counterintuitive to a lot of people. And one yeah. of the books I 
read about it, compared it to taking a red pill and going down the rabbit hole and all of those other cliches about changing your mind, changing your outlook. But yeah. it is like that in a way. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. Uh, you know, uh, l let me address this first. I didn't know what MMT was until a couple of years ago. I just thought it was post-Keynesian macroeconomics because to me, a, a central element of post-Keynesian, you know, all the way back to Keynes, uh, of that economic approach is understanding how the financial system actually operates in some detail, not in sort of, you know, broad, oh, they loan out some money and, and they can make, get money. But, but I mean, specifically, where does that money that they loan come from uh, and how are loans created and so forth? So I just, it wasn't until I was on Facebook and, and got invited to a couple of these, uh, you know, groups uh, and, and then I had, somebody said to me something about MMT. I was like, what's MMT? Uh, so it's what we're talking about right now. I said, oh, I thought we were talking post-Keynesian economics. So, so I, I guess uh, it's funny to me that it's, it, and I guess it's kind of good because I think it's, it's broadened its appeal to people for it to be its own sort of subset of, of information. What it is is it's sort of a boiled down, uh, here's a little piece of post-Keynesian economic theory. However, there are things that it leaves out that I think are, are vital uh, as well. But anyway. But yeah, first thing is I didn't even know it existed, and apparently I am one. Um, now, I've given a, a number of talks on the debt and the deficit, and my wife has suffered through, I think, almost every single one. And you're talking about the, you know, taking the red pill or the, or, or the uh, blue pill, uh, and she said, among other things, you can't challenge too many of people's accepted beliefs at once. You have to do just one at a time because there's several, it's a lot to take in at once. But it all boils down to understanding how the process actually takes place, how banks create money. And I'm working on a book right now uh, just for the general public. Uh, I want a book where the average person, like my father-in-law, for example, is an intelligent guy, but you know he's not an economist. Uh, you know, I want to orient this towards the general public and say, this is how it actually works. Uh, in chapter three, is nothing but um, sort of balance sheets. Uh, and I try to make it very simple and straightforward, but you know, you have to understand how banks actually make money. And this you know, eventually relates to the, to the government. Uh, banks make it up out of thin air. Uh, they're, you know, they, they write down on their assets and liabilities columns, they write down a million dollars under assets. Yeah, I have a million dollars in loans. And then how do they make that loan? Uh, do they wait for someone to deposit the money? No, 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 no. They just hand you a checkbook and, and say, Adam, here's here's a checkbook. It's worth for up, up to a million dollars. And we put that on the on the liability side. Assets and liabilities balance out, and we're done. Now, were it not for Federal Reserve requirements on required reserve ratios, that could be done at that point. And that's the way it used to be. Banks, it was entirely up to them to decide how much was safe. Because if, of course, everyone came in to withdraw their money from their checking accounts at once, it's, it's not all there. They've, they've, they've invented money. Uh, and so it can't be there because the, the, the basic savings uh, aren't there. Nowadays, they do have to cover the reserves, but that's easy. Covering reserves is easy because the Fed, it, without going into detail, the Fed, in order to defend an interest rate, has to accommodate. Uh, and so really the issue is not, um, you know, the, the reserves anymore at all. It, it's the overall uh, capital asset ratio, but that, that's going into something more uh, detail. But the point, first point is that in a modern monetary economy, money is money is essentially. I, I was talking to my wife. I, I I forced her to read the chapter. 
and, and so she reads all this stuff for me so that she can give me an intelligent layperson's view so that she can tell me, you know, when I've gotten too complicated and so forth. And she, we were talking about this chapter and I said, well, it's like on Little House on the Prairie when Mr. Engels would come into town and he would say to the general store owner, uh, I need some seed, but I can't pay you until the end of the harvest. And the general store owner said, that's okay. You're good for it. We'll give you credit. And so Mr. Engels writes out, you know, I owe you $5 and hands it to the general store owner and goes off and plants his, his seed. In the meantime, the general store owner might want to buy something from somebody else that's for $5. Well, if, if that other person also knows Mr. Engels and trusts Mr. Engels to repay, they could just use the IOU. Uh, they could pass the IOU from person to person and use that as cash. And that is 95% of all the money that exists right now is simply an IOU created when somebody bought a car, when um, a, a company, you know, built a, a strip shopping center or whatever. It's all little IOUs, uh, just like Mr. You know, Ingalls would uh, give to the general store owner. And so, okay, so then, then going back to the government, uh, and there's, you know, the first thing is, they don't have to borrow the money. Um, they invent it out of thin air. They do the same thing. They tell the Treasury Department they want to spend X amount of money, and you know that goes in the asset and the liability column. The money is created. Now we do have a legal obligation to quote unquote borrow the money, but then it, it, it's easier to sort of draw this out. But um, they have the people who sell the Treasury bills. In order for the Fed to maintain the interest rate target, the Fed essentially has to buy the Treasury bills back. So, I mean, uh, in the end, really all we're doing is creating money to finance the government continuously. Now, there's no way that made any sense to anyone who didn't already understand what I was talking about. So it, 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 uh, it really requires, in fact, I have a video online, uh, Schaff uh, Reisberg made it for me uh, to explain the whole process uh, in step-by-step -step detail. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good idea. But um, the modern monetary theory thing is talking about the fact that government debt is not a burden. In fact, when the government borrows money, that is our asset. Uh, that if we only have two people in the economy, say Adam Smith and, and uh, um, David Ricardo. Marshall. Yeah, that's exactly the example I use in, in a class, and Alfred Marshall. Uh, and uh, did I use that in one of the videos? You did. Yeah. Uh, Adam Smith, I can't, I can't remember who I used. I switched to David Ricardo. But Adam Smith and Alfred Marshall, if Adam Smith, there's the only two people in the economy, if Adam Smith spends $50 more than he earns, then clearly he earned 50 more than he spent. So, you know, and I say to people, who would you rather be? Oh, well, I'd rather be the one who earned 50 more than he spent. Okay, well, you are. You're the private sector. This is the government and this is the private sector. And when this side spends more than it earns, this side earns more than it spends. And that is a mathematical accounting fact. I mean, there is no way around that, that when the government spends more than it earns, you earned more than you spent. And we need them to do that because the private sector does not generate sufficient demand to hire everyone who's willing to work. And so we need them to create extra demand. Uh, and gosh, do you know that since the financial crisis, uh, the recession associated with it officially ended? that I got to go back and look at my numbers now. Uh, I, I did a, a Forbes blog post on this. Only a couple of times has government spending increased. Guess what our two record increases in GDP growth were 
since the end of the of the recession, it were those two quarters when government spending increased the most, economic growth increased the most. Well, of course it did. I mean, the people who are trying to cut government spending, you're you're cutting somebody's job, you're cutting somebody's income, and so uh, you know, one of the fiscal cliff things occurred when I was teaching a night class with a guy who was active Air Force and retired Army, two guys in there, and I said to him, uh, talking about the fiscal cliff, and they were both like. Friends of ours are worried to death because they know it means their jobs. Uh, friends of theirs in the defense industry, friends of theirs who are, you know, uh, military personnel. Um, and so there is no economic problem that is solved by unemployment. That's something I've started saying a lot lately with all these austerity movements everywhere. There is no economic problem that is made better by unemployment. There isn't an economic problem that's made better by reducing people's income. Uh, and that's what those people who don't understand the way the debt and the deficit works, that's what they think. They think that, that well, we need to reduce spending because the government is like a, uh, you and me, they're budget constrained. No, they're not. Uh, not only are they not budget constrained, all the debt's in dollars. We can never default on debt that is only in dollars. Uh, and the government's debt is our asset and the government's deficit is our surplus. I'm sorry, I bounced all around in that one, but they're, they're, it's one of those issues where there are so many directions to hit at once, um, it, it's hard, regardless of where you start, someone's going to have a question in their mind about, yeah, but what about so-and-so? I say, well, I, I'll get there when I get, you know, I'll come back around to it. But anyway, hard to do in a uh, just a few minutes. All right. Well, we are approaching the hour mark, and we have covered what we wanted to. Excellent. So I think we are ready call it a night then i will get on very much. yeah very good thank you very much adam i really enjoyed it and as i said i'll get on with my invasion of russia here in just a minute it's it's almost june 41 i decided to do it historically uh so the germans are all lined up on the border and we'll see what happens next this will be a real clash of, of ideas just as pluralism is is there well is the weather a factor yes as a matter of fact i was going to invade in may but unfortunately, I rolled uh, when I rolled the dice for the weather uh, in the May turn, I ended up with poor weather, which was going to limit the Luftwaffe and my armored units. So I said, well, okay, I'll hold off till June. Uh, so, and hopefully, once you hit July, you're pretty much guaranteed good weather. But June, it could still be bad. But I'm, I'm going in anyway in June, so we'll see what happens. But yes, oh. the weather is. Oh, and I'm, I see what you're thinking. You're thinking winter. I was thinking the invasion. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It is a big factor. Uh, and so, especially the first winter. Uh, the Russians are able to play a Russian winter chit to uh, make it even worse for the Germans, which, of course, they will. It just keeps right. me off the streets. Yeah, yeah that's what matters. Keeps <laughs> resorting to crime. Exactly, exactly. All right. All right. It Thanks very much, Adam. Be up and... Well... And Actually, I do need to post the link to your book and whatever I'll, other links you want me. Right. I'll send that to you here in just a minute. Okay. All yeah. right. All right. May the force be with you. It shall. Bye -bye. <laughs> See you.